Welcome to the Heart Failure Focus Podcast. Each episode is designed to help the busy healthcare professional break down all aspects of heart failure into different topics so you can listen on the go during the course of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses. The AAHFN is a specialty organization dedicated to advancing nursing education, clinical practice, and research to improve heart failure patients' outcomes. You can learn more about the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses and subscribe to this podcast today at aahfn.org. Thank you all for being with us this evening as we discuss another session on cardiac amyloid. We have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Farouk Sheikh this evening. He's an assistant professor of medicine at Georgetown University School of Medicine. He's the director of the Infiltrative Cardiomyopathy Program and medical director of the Mechanical Circulatory Program at MedStar Heart and Vascular Institute. She graduated from York Medical College. He completed his internal medicine residency at Columbia University Center. He's a cardiovascular medicine advanced heart failure fellow at John Hopkins University, where he subsequently served as assistant professor of medicine. Sheik has served as principal investigator for several amyloid clinical trials. His clinical research interest lies in the evaluation of patients with trenthyretine cardiac amyloidosis, particularly the clinical characteristics and outcomes of ATTR patients with a VAL142I mutation. We certainly are thankful for you to be with us this evening. We're looking forward to a discussion as we consider the diagnostics of cardiac amyloid. Just briefly, the last podcast with Cindy Bytherwee. We discussed clinical characteristics of cardiac amyloidosis and the three subtypes, trying to consider how to appreciate those patients that may present that may prompt a consideration of amyloid. And and tonight, we'd like to discuss how to efficiently diagnose those patients, both validating the amyloid and then figuring out the subtypes as we move into treatment therapies. And we're just thankful that you're willing to spend some of your time. So with that in mind, We have that patient that sits in front of us, and we start seeing this constellation of signs and symptoms that that point toward cardiac amyloidosis, and we feel like we have something. How do we efficiently start that diagnostic algorithm to validate the diagnosis and to subtype it and move into treatment therapies? Thank you so much, Chris, for the introduction. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to join you tonight for the podcast and getting the word out, making sure that we educate everyone that is interested in learning more about the diagnostic algorithm for amyloidosis is part of my labor of love. And so I'm very excited to join you tonight. I think the first thing I would say is that what is exciting about making the diagnosis of amyloidosis is as the clinician, we have the opportunity to prevent patients from unnecessary suffering by making a diagnosis earlier. So just like any detective, our job is we're racing to a diagnosis. This is an iterative process. So let me repeat that word, iterative meaning repetitive. Your first signal that you might be thinking of amyloidosis might be because of a red flag sign or symptom. Somebody has carpal tunnel disease, someone has a family history of heart failure, somebody has an ethnic background or other first degree relatives who may have carry a diagnosis of neuropathy or even maybe have the diagnosis of amyloidosis. So we're putting pieces together And the race and the most important thing that we're trying to do is to identify the precursor protein that is leading to the diagnosis of amyloidosis. So the first sign might be an abnormal EKG, which shows low voltage or a previous myocardial infarction, despite the fact the patient doesn't have one. 
But generally speaking, that first signal for cardiac amyloidosis will come with an echocardiogram. And that echocardiogram will have salient features and diagnostic characteristics that lead us down the pathway. At that point, we embark on a diagnostic algorithm where we rapidly exclude the most feared form of amyloid. And so you mentioned in your previous podcast that Cindy, who I know personally because she works with our team, an expert on the subject, highlighted the three predominant forms of cardiac amyloidosis, those being AL or amyloid light chain cardiac amyloidosis, ATTR wild type, the most common form of cardiac amyloidosis, and ATTRV, also known as hereditary amyloidosis. So two precursor proteins, one, the light chain version, which is related to plasma cells and their inability to make fully formed immunoglobulins, which misfold and result in deposition of amyloid, and then transthyretin, otherwise known as prealbumin, which in one or these two forms results in disease. And our job is to identify this precursor protein and do it reflexively every, every time. So our first step is when we suspect amyloid is to immediately draw blood tests. And those blood tests are as follows. We recommend immediately checking a serum immunofixation, a urine immunofixation. This is not a protein retrophoresis, but actually an immunofixation, which I'm happy to discuss in, in further detail in a second. And then the third blood test is a test called a serum-free light chain assay. And these three tests are to exclude a plasma cell dyscrasia. If they end up being normal, then we know we have excluded AL amyloidosis, and then we can proceed down a non-invasive diagnostic algorithm towards a diagnosis of transthyretin amyloidosis, which would involve technetium pyrophosphate imaging, a non-invasive nuclear imaging modality for the diagnosis of TTR amyloidosis. Excellent review, and thank you. You mentioned electrophoresis versus immunofixation. For those of us who don't wade off into the diagnostic criteria, can you briefly explain the difference between the two and why that's an important consideration? Serum protein electrophoresis and urine protein electrophoresis works on the principle that using an agarose gel, we can separate proteins based on their electrical charge from a positive signal and a negative signal. And depending on the charge of that protein, they will separate according to both size of the protein as well as their charge. Though a wonderful test, what we've learned is that the sensitivity, statistically speaking, the sensitivity and specificity to identify a monoclonal protein that can result in amyloidosis is not sufficient with that technology. So we've added serum immunofixation, which people who read papers or journals will also find this term serum protein electrophoresis with immunofixation, otherwise the acronym SPIE, which is the same thing as serum immunofixation. And what that adds is incrementally, you add a monoclonal antibody against proteins on that gel, which are able to bring out and accentuate the signal of a very faint monoclonal protein. And so you're able to increase your yield of finding a monoclonal protein. So it's not just a separation based on the electrophoresis, but it's the addition of a monoclonal antibody to pull out these very faint bands of proteins that may, unfortunately, serve as pathogenic source for amyloidosis. Excellent. And certainly when we see that concern or when those labs come back positive, that's usually an urgent referral. I assume that's the same. That's something that needs to be taken care of very quickly. Yes, very well said. And that is part of that exciting part of the detective role that we all play as clinicians. And that begins with nurses at the bedside, nurse practitioners, obviously physicians, any clinician where you might put together the clinical history, 
hear the story of the patient's suffering, many nonspecific symptoms, put that puzzle together. And when you then identify a plasma cell dyscrasia, an abnormality plasma cells where they may be producing a monoclonal protein, and you have cardiac evidence or concern for an infiltrative cardiomyopathy like amyloidosis, you will simultaneously refer to a hematologist to evaluate that bone marrow issue. And then we would then go embark in that scenario to an endomyocardial biopsy or cardiac biopsy to try to make the diagnosis. We recognize not all institutions have the ability to do cardiac biopsies. And so certain institutions use testing like fat pad biopsies. The reality is, is that unfortunately, except in very expert hands, fat pad biopsy as an alternative mechanism to make the diagnosis of amyloid is unfortunately does not have enough negative predictive value because of, again, issues in terms of yield. And even in the best hands, it's really probably not sufficient. And so we want to go after the affected organ. And so in our podcast tonight, we're talking about cardiac amyloidosis. So the heart is affected. And that's where we want to pursue an endomyocardial biopsy. And for some hospitals and clinicians, the referral to a tertiary care center may be necessary to make that diagnosis. Fortunately, our patient does not have ALL. As we consider bone centigraphy with PYP, how specific are those tests? How reliable are they? What maybe are some of the um, handicaps from that testing? Certainly around here, we worry about body habitus from time to time, and imaging can be a little suspect. Walk us through how, and also the unique capacity for PYP to actually detect this process when we look at nuclear imaging. 15 years ago, European, specifically Italian investigators, highlighted in a publication in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology that there was this predilection for patients with cardiac amyloidosis for their hearts to illuminate or light up with the use of this radionuclide technician pyrophosphate. And in Europe, they use two other types of forms of radionuclide, which are beyond the scope of today's discussion. But what we still don't know is actually the reason why this bone avid compound discovered many, many years ago has a predilection for transthyretin amyloidosis. We just know that it does bind it and then lights it up in the heart. The challenge with technician pyrophosphate, as has been highlighted in several papers recently about some of the pitfalls related to technology, are we have to make sure diagnostically we're doing the test right. So number one, I would encourage everyone to go to the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology. Their website has some tips as to how we can best implement this technology because there are private offices that are using it, which is wonderful. We want to have a rapid implementation of the technology. But as we're rapidly employing the technology, we want to make sure we stay faithful to the original observation made by Italian investigators. And then subsequently, really highlighted through a multi-institutional, transcontinental publication now, probably three or four years ago in circulation with investigators from Europe and the United States, where over a thousand patients were pooled together and the utility of the use of this technology was highlighted with nearly perfect statistical characteristics. Meaning, if you excluded a plasma cell dyscrasia, you exclude a monoclonal gammopathy, and you suspect amyloidosis, you have nearly a perfect statistical properties to be able to make the diagnosis. With the caveats being that, one, we want to image both in the planar view as well as add single photon emission CT imaging, SPECT imaging, to exclude, as you brought up, Chris, some false positive findings. Number one, you can sometimes mistake cardiac tissue for the blood pool. So we want to do three-hour testing and use SPECT imaging. Number two, we have to make sure that we are not also looking at other disease states that may cohabitate with positive PYP imaging. 
there's some data that's emerging that potentially patients with chronic kidney disease or a dialysis status may have a predilection for uptake of PYP. More to follow on that. We've seen that at our institution. Patients with previous myocardial or recent myocardial infarction can have uptake of PYP imaging, the radionucleotide. We also know that actually very interesting, the Mayo Clinic highlighted that patients who take hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil may also have this uptake. So there can be these coexisting conditions and disease states that may allow for this false positive diagnosis. But the reality is that if we do this test and we see uptake that is equal to the ribs or greater than the ribs, the grade two or grade three score, we have really cinched the diagnosis. I would remind everyone as being a good detective that your pretest probability is everything. So if you are really suspicious, you have an echo that screams amyloid, you might have an MRI that screams amyloid, and you may have a clinical history that screams amyloid, and you're not convinced you got the right answer with the PYP scan, it's a grade two score. Remember, there are qualitative features, which are that grade zero to grade three scoring system, and then the quantitative score, which is the heart to contralateral lung ratio of greater than 1.5 on three-hour imaging. If you don't achieve those scores and you're saying, wow, why didn't I get this? Always remember you have in your back pocket the gold standard. And that gold standard is endomyocardial biopsy, whose sensitivity and specificity is approaching 100%. It not only allows us to make the diagnosis of amyloid, it then allows us to identify the precursor protein because we can send it off to the Mayo Clinic, who through a proprietary mechanism has developed a way to actually, using a technology known as proteomic analysis, be able to make the diagnosis by taking the amyloid tissue, digesting it, and then actually determining the precursor protein. The take-home message is in these diseases that have very varied presentations, we say protein presentations, no pun intended, of course, we can actually remember that we always can go to the gold standard. We always can feel reassured that if we do endomyocardial biopsy, the chances we miss it are almost near 0%. I would actually just add one comment that I wanted to make about PYP imaging is that there is also another review article, a beautiful review article on amyloidosis, a shameless pitch also for the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology and other co-governing societies of a multimodality imaging approach for cardiac amyloid. It's two parts. It tells you what you can expect on echo, what you can expect on MRI, what you can expect with PYP imaging, and tells you about some pitfalls. And so I would recommend clinicians review that as well. You mentioned earlier myocardial infarction may confuse the imaging. Is there a particular time, a window of time that we should wait that would allow that to resolve? I don't think we yet have defined the period of observation. I think most people say within the first three months is what people are saying. But in terms of the true measure, as we collect more and more granular data around PYP imaging in the community will have more information about what are false positives and what are false negatives, which I'm going to talk about here in a second. But a true description of the breadth and width of what causes false positives, I don't think we've yet described. It is also important to point out that that same amyloid group of investigators have recently published one specific amyloidogenic mutation in the transthyretin gene that seems to have a very high false negative rate for reasons people don't understand. So this one particular type of amyloid mutation seems to have a very false negative rate for reasons we don't understand. So the point here is we are still learning quite a bit about how to integrate PYP imaging. The good news is is the predominant form of hereditary amyloidosis in the United States, which is the valine isoleucine substitution at codon 122 or 142, depending on the nomenclature you use, does not seem to have this issue. 
and wild type amyloidosis does not appear to have this issue as well. So I think we still stand a great chance if we employ this technology properly to make the diagnosis. We've had the opportunity to diagnose four VAL-142Is in the last six months. Our African-American community is a very heavy population in this particular area. And I suspect as we start to look, we're going to find that much, much more. I'm a little curious when you mentioned pretest probability and recognizing that some of the hereditary types may have false negatives. How would neurotesting, conduction testing, or what would you do in that particular population to further assess? Would that be MRI or would you look at a neuroassessment? In the integration of the diagnosis and the prognosis of amyloidosis, in our amyloid center, we generally, if patients are, can tolerate the procedure, have no absolute contraindications, we standardly use echocardiogram, which serves really as the gold standard diagnostic test to give us the first signals of amyloidosis. We then use MRI because MRI really allows us to image the extracellular matrix. Remember, this is a disease of the cardiac interstitium or the extracellular matrix where amyloid is being deposited in that space. And MRI allows us very elegantly to look at the expansion of that extracellular matrix, changes in that extracellular matrix. Those are both diagnostic as well as prognostic in this disease. My point in terms of that comment regarding pretest probability is if you have in totality, just like a detective, you have all this data that's damning for the diagnosis of amyloid, but you get a PYP scan that doesn't fit that diagnosis because understandably, patients are going to want to pursue a non-invasive way to make a diagnosis. My advice to you is to not stop there, to be able to say to your patients, hey, listen, I was hoping we'd make this diagnosis. We didn't get there. The only way to truly make this diagnosis now is to get a tissue diagnosis. At the end of the day, even with a PYP scan, it is not a tissue diagnosis. Remember, for the first 50 plus years of this disease, I mean, this amyloidosis has been diagnosed and first described over 100 years ago. But in the sort of modern iteration of this disease, the only way you made the diagnosis of amyloid was to take a tissue biopsy and to use Congo red stain to identify a proteinaceous material in the extracellular matrix of whatever organ you looked at that stained this Congo red stain, this classic apple green birefringent color. That was the only way you could make the diagnosis. Now, thankfully, we have advanced with PYP imaging. But my point to everybody is if you remain suspicious, being the advocate for your patients, don't stop there. Advocate for your patients to go through the gold standard test because you may identify some patients who have false negative results. And you might even find people the opposite where you say, wow, you know, I wasn't suspecting amyloid. I did this PYP scan. I don't even believe it. I, you know, you got a grade two score. Let's do the biopsy. And maybe you don't have this diagnosis. In fact, this week I have a patient who has a grade two PYP scan. I looked at his echo, his MRI. They're equivocal. There are other diagnoses that could explain those changes. Oh, by the way, he has another genetic mutation and another gene that has been identified with dilated cardiomyopathy. So I'm sending him for an endomyocardial biopsy, even though by the letter of the law, he has a grade two PYP scan. Some people might wash their hands and say, you have amyloid. I'm not convinced he does. And so I'm going to the gold standard test and that is a biopsy. Absolutely. The therapies are quite expensive as well. We certainly don't want to abuse our resources. Curious as well, the technology associated with apical strain imaging, do you see utility there or is that more just a novel technology that we're playing with or where might we use that in practice? So absolutely useful, absolutely illuminating, but not specific enough to tell us that you have amyloid. What it tells us 
is that there is an alteration in that extracellular matrix. There is something that's preventing the normal excursion of the heart from the base to the apex in one conformational change. And you see that on echo, and we now are doing it for patients with suspected amyloid. But I would say to you, we have seen it in other infiltrative cardiomyopathies. I've seen it in sarcoidosis, though rarely. I've seen it in Fabre's disease, another form of infiltrative cardiomyopathy that is genetic in nature with the buildup of material in the extracellular matrix. Though it is clearly consistent with an infiltrative cardiomyopathy, it is unfortunately not specific enough for cardiac amyloidosis. And it's important to note that there are patients with cardiac amyloidosis who do not have the classic features of that cherry on top, normal strain at the apex preservation of the apical strain relative to the mid and basal portions of the LV. I say this to all of our referring cardiologists and clinicians, we never rely on one data point to make or to exclude a diagnosis. The fun part about this is to, as the detective, is put your data together. You might have things that go in favor of the diagnosis. You may have things that go against it. Put all that data together in totality and never rely on one specific thing to include or exclude the diagnosis except that tissue diagnosis. That ultimately will serve you as the final arbiter to make the diagnosis. A little curious, you're probably much more privy to some of the novel diagnostics that are coming down the line. Are there any emerging technologies that may actually improve the specificity that are non-invasive or new opportunities that may help us with the diagnosis? It's a very exciting time for amyloidosis and infiltrative cardiomyopathies in general. Absolutely. PET imaging is being tested and positron emission tomography you've heard about in cancer diagnostics, cardiac sarcoidosis and myocarditis. We already have this established and there's some new radionuclides that are being tested with PET imaging, which is very exciting. There's some very novel research being performed by a number of investigators, one particularly in, in Tennessee, you'll be proud of it, down in the South. And I apologize, I forgot his name and I feel terrible about it. I will uh, reference it and maybe we can attach it to the podcast at some point. But there are individuals, researchers looking at ways to bind amyloid fibrils to actually look in totality at amyloid load. And that is something that's very exciting because as a burden of disease, we might be able to actually know a little bit more about a patient if we can directly bind amyloid fibrils. That is something that is probably still a few years away, but is certainly in the investigation period of the journey towards diagnostic testing. We actually have a PET machine. Maybe we can use it a little bit more. That's great here in the office. That's awesome. I really appreciate that review fairly thorough for just a few minutes without making it so cumbersome that we can't recall things. I noticed that you had some of your training at John Hopkins, and there was an article in September looking at a preserved dejection fraction where they did endocardial biopsy, and 13% of those individuals had amyloid-type issues. Could it be that much of diastolic dysfunction that we have so ill-defined for many years may actually be amyloid, and we have an opportunity to capture some of that? Do you see us making headway in that particular area? Wonderful observation, Chris. I think that was a very illuminating paper that highlighted an observation that was also previously made by Mayo Clinic investigators, published a few years ago in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, Heart Failure, the same journal that published this paper. As you pointed out, the comment was that in, in all comers being screened for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, 13% of them, a significant number, had amyloid deposits seen. And this was surprising in 50% of the cases, meaning at this expert institution, 50% of the time, they weren't expecting to find amyloid. That paper I highlighted from the Mayo Clinic a few years older actually did it, in, interestingly, they did autopsy data. So they took patients at Mayo Clinic 
where the deceased was kind enough to donate their heart for further future analyses and asked the question, what percentage of patients with an established diagnosis of HEFPEF, heart failure preserved ejection fraction, versus age-matched controls had amyloid deposits? And that number was shockingly high as the age of the individual went up. So this concept of a protein misfolding disorder contributing to human disease we are just on the precipice of all sorts of new knowledge. And so you highlighted in that previous question, the new diagnostics that are coming to make this diagnosis. We are going to learn so much more about this. There's some interesting screening studies being done by leading investigators, Rick Ruberg at Boston University, Matt Moore at Columbia University, where they're actually going to take a large population of people in the community and offer them PYP imaging to ask that question. How prevalent is this in the community? And so I think, stay tuned. I think the next three to five years are going to be very exciting. Excellent. Look, we thank you so much for your time. I appreciate your energy. I appreciate your ability to discuss that in such a way that we can really apply it to our practice. And we can see that in the patients that we're beginning to recognize the disease and really efficiently diagnose the process. I think when I look back, our process to identify and diagnose and treat these patients was just abysmal. It took far too long to do what was necessary. I really appreciate folks like yourself who are streamlining the effort and do it in a way that has a little charisma. We appreciate it. Thank you again for your time and uh, look forward to meeting you someday. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much for the invitation. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Heart Failure Focus Podcast, brought to you by the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses. To learn more about the AAHFN and to subscribe to this podcast, please visit aahfn.org. We'll see you next time on the Heart Failure Focus Podcast.